Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The members of the ADHD Essentials Facebook community are connecting with each other regularly and posting lots and lots of useful resources. If that kind of support is something you need right now, consider joining. Go to www.facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. The link will be in the show notes. Our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired and Hacking Your ADHD, are wonderful resources. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares excellent interviews with ADHD experts and adults affected by the disorder. And Will Kerb shares practical, actionable tips on how to manage things more effectively on his show, Hacking Your ADHD. And don't forget to join the three of us for a live Q&A on April 14th at 1.30 Eastern. Go to www.adhdrewired.com events to register. Finally, another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode, and I couldn't be more grateful. Learn more about his work at idealvideostrategies.com. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Roxanne Jarrett. Roxanne is a coach, educator, multidisciplined artist, and a mother with ADHD. She believes that consistent creativity can be a powerful affirmation of our unique contributions to the world and evidence of our self-worth. Her mission is to help people build and maintain feelings of self-value through creative accomplishments. In today's episode, Roxanne and I talk about the benefits of understanding the needs of the people we are caring for, why we should push our kids in the directions of their passions, even when it's hard, how short-term goals fuel our pursuit of long-term goals, why putting our adult ambitions on our kids is inappropriate, and the power of theater arts. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Roxanne Jarrett. I am an ADHDer, a proud one, and I'm the mom of an ADHDer. Uh, I'm a coach, and I help people with ADHD, entrepreneurs with ADHD, finish their projects and move their businesses forward. And I am also an educator, and I've worked in many different areas, most specifically in arts and education. There's a lot of really fun stuff that I'm looking forward to talking to you about. Because you have this like pretty broad spectrum of experience where you're a mom with ADHD, so I'm sure you've got some like momming and parenting tips that come from the creativity side of your history as an educator and you work with ADHD creative entrepreneurs now. So I'm excited to sort of look at creativity and parenting and and you've got some tips on how to help people finish stuff in there as well. So I'm just really jazzed about, about this interview. Yes, let's bring the jazz. Yeah. <laughs> 
Let's start with the creative entrepreneurs that you work with. Yes. What does that look like? Oh, well, it looks like I do this thing called momentum meetings. So they're one-on-one intensive sessions that last for a minimum of two hours. Wow. Where creative entrepreneurs with ADHD can fast track their success in six or 12 weeks. So my background is in education, as you know, and I'm also a practicing artist with ADHD. I also have a background in executive assistance and housekeeping, believe it or not. I know a lot of people with ADHD have varied work histories and a big part of my work history has been being an an administrative assistant in corporate and in nonprofit agencies, right? So I, in a momentum meeting, will actually wear many hats. And those are awesome hats to be able to wear. Like you've got project management kind of stuff from the executive assistant work. And you've got like home stuff nailed down from being a housekeeper. And those are two areas where an artistic creative person are potentially going to run into trouble that impact each other often without us even realizing it. Like the state of our house can affect the state of our mind. So that's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. You didn't tell me about these two parts in the beginning in the pre-interview. So now I'm all kinds of excited. (laughs) Right. So, so for example, I worked, I worked with someone who one-on-one in person because I work virtually, but I also work in person. I love working in person, but it's not always possible. So I knew that this gentleman was coming home from work. I knew that he dealt with anxiety. I knew that he would have, he would be hungry after work. (laughs) And I knew that he needed things tight. So within a momentum meeting, while I provide structure and set goals, I also work along with whomever my client is to complete projects within the time. So momentum meetings are not only about planning. Actually, it's only, planning is only a small percentage of the meeting. The rest of it is execution. So he had to rewrite a sonnet, but he had one that was all ready to go with edits, but it needed to be typed. So I typed that while he worked on something else. And when he came home from work and he's ready to go into this momentum meeting, well, I had dinner ready. <laughs> and I brought, I brought uh, a kava kava tea because it, it lowers anxiety. It's an herbal tea that works as an anxiety. Now, he didn't choose to drink that, but what I do is I try to understand all of the challenges of my client and I try to cater to that uh, the best way that I can because I did spend a great deal of time in service and when I say service I mean household service so a, a big part of household service is trying to understand and predict the needs of the person that you're working with awesome that's so cool as a way to structure your sessions with your clients that I like the fact that you focus on execution with them. Um, I do that with my clients sometimes, but I I really dig that because that adds a layer of accountability in the moment. It's not like next week, tell me how you did on the thing. It's like right now you do that thing and 
I'll be back with some Kava Kava tea and we'll see how you're doing with regard to, to whatever this execution is, the sonnet in this case, which ladies and gentlemen is a poem <laughs> or a type of a poem. I didn't ask Roxanne what it was because I felt like I wouldn't be doing my due diligence as a former English teacher if I couldn't at least let you guys know it's a kind of a poem. I'm not going to go deep on exactly what that means, but it's a form of a poem. Um, Shakespeare wrote a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when it comes to these, to your sessions with your clients, how have those sessions informed like you and your existence as a mom and as your own person with ADHD? How, what have you learned from yourself, I guess, by, by doing these intensive sessions with your clients? Well, I learned from myself, everybody's different <laughs> for sure. There's no cookie cutter uh, approach. I mean, there are certain things that I do stand upon, you know, but I really have, have to and have had to learn how to be flexible, how to be accommodating, and how to be understanding. And as much as I would like to say that that has worked very well as a mom, I, have, I, I mean, that mother-child dynamic is, is one that has existed from the beginning of time. And just because I have some great methods that work with clients, that doesn't mean they necessarily work when I'm being a parent to my own child. I have the same problem. Yeah. I'd be lying if I would say that was true. <laughs> I have the same problem. One of the things you work on with your clients is around like creativity and strengths and really fostering those things and then kind of rolling into a dopamine rush as well. Can you walk us through what that looks like and how that plays out with your clients and, and maybe even, and maybe even how can, how can the parents kind of play similarly with creativity for their kids and, and especially their kids' strengths? So I'm a big proponent of looking at the big picture plan for an entrepreneur first. And I would say for anyone, no matter if you're an entrepreneur or not, look at your big picture first and then break your work down into chunks, right? And I, that's nothing new. It's nothing revolutionary. I'm sure uh, many have heard that before. The thing is, though, part of looking at the big picture plan is, is testing for excitement. So if there is not this just great rush of excitement, this passion that's just flowing through your veins when you look at the project that you're embarking on, then it might not be the right project, at least not right now. And that's a very important thing, I think, for anyone to understand, and particularly someone with ADHD. I, I was terrified when I was in college and I ended up declaring a major of drama studies, right? Because I was coming from a culture where going into an arts profession was kind of like, well, you're just never going to make any money, right? But I had to do it. I had to go into studying theater because everything else did not provide me the dopamine rush that would sustain my attention. And so with my daughter, for example, I'm dealing with her school right now quite a bit. And because she's a teenage girl and because, you know, there's that teenage girl and mom push and pull that's so typical, what I try to do is just put her in the position to 
study something that she's really passionate about. And luckily I saw that she had a passion for visual art very early. So I'm not going to be the facilitator necessarily, not the hands-on facilitator because I'm mom, right? I'm just going to put her in, in a place where she can study and explore art to the fullest that she can, you know, wherever she is. And let her go from there and let her find her passion and her profession from there. I, I ended up going to grad school because I was afraid that I was finishing with a bachelor's in drama studies and thinking I would never work, right? And so luckily I ended up going to grad school and finding a program called educational theater, right? So for any parent, I would push the child into the direction of their passion. And, and sometimes, your, sometimes your child will push back because, and I, I know my daughter's probably going to be really mad about this, but she just started high school this, this uh, in 2019, September and fall. And she was in a digital art class and she had never done it before. But I just had a sense just from everything else that she's done that she's going to love this. But the first part was really technical and she wanted to drop the class, right? And luckily she decided she wanted to drop the class like several weeks into the semester. So the guidance counselors kind of backed me up like, no, it's too late to drop the class. And so she was kind of upset that, oh, this is hard. This is hard. And the teacher already told me, the first part is hard, it's technical, but then it gets better. But she just wanted to drop the class. Well, guess what? The only class she got an A in at the end of the semester was digital art, right? Because I knew she had the passion there, but sometimes your kids are going, they're going to have to struggle and gain some skills and kind of deal with the difficult part of working. And because that's what, what happens in any job, any profession, there's a part that there's, there are hurdles you have to jump and there's skills you have to acquire and it can be annoying, but yo, once you acquire that skill, then you can build on that. Yeah. It might be hard to learn to learn how to measure and do all of this stuff to make a chair. But once you learn the fundamentals of making a chair, you can make chairs with three legs. You can come up with all of this stuff once you understand the fundamentals. So I would say if you have a child and you see the child has a passion, if you're going to push your child, push them in the direction of their passion. And, and if you're going to to push them and, and encourage them, encourage them through the difficult parts of learning the skills. And yeah, they'll probably fight you on it. But at the end, in the end, you know that you're feeding their passion. Make sure it's not about you and what you want for them, but what, what you clearly see that they want for themselves, even though they can sometimes not want to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. You're reminding me of a quote by Ira Glass about the gist of it is that a lot of artists and this it's slightly it's sort of next to what you're talking about because you're talking about skill and and that, that comes up here too but but he talks about how one of the challenges for artists is they have this phenomenal taste yes i know that that quote you're talking about yes 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 yeah mm -hmm. it's such a good quote i would I would go digging around and try to find it on the internet, but that'll, it'll be boring if I just read a quote in my audience. But now, you know what? I'll do it. I'm going to do it. 
because I, I already found it, and I'm not going to pretend I didn't. Yes. Do you mind if I read it? Oh, I don't mind. I absolutely love this one. Mm-hmm. I actually gave it to my daughter. Oh, cool. During the time when she didn't want to, when she wanted to drop out of digital art. That's the quote. Awesome. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, so <laughs> I'll read this quote real quick, because it's great. Yes. This is a quote from Ira Glass about the gap of creativity. Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you're just starting out or you're still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you'll finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You've just got to fight your way through. That quote is amazing and has served me well. And I've, I haven't thrown that quote at a client for like a year probably, but it served clients a few years ago pretty well for a while there when I was using it a lot. And I'm excited to hear that you know it and that you shared it with your daughter because that, that's critical to help our kids and, our, and adults even get through the gap of not being as skilled as we would like to be. And I know even though Ira is talking about writing, it applies to everything, obviously. Yeah. Getting through that gap is where resiliency lives. And that's, that's the thing that we ADHD people just have to foster and grow. And the dopamine rush helps us push through that gap when the resiliency starts to fall, right? So how, how do you get your clients to, to that dopamine rush? How do you help them use that? Well, I create these, fin- these attainable finish lines, right? Because it's so great when you set, I mean, it's, it's great to have long-term plans and long-term goals, but what feeds that momentum is, are these short-term goals and these short-term wins. So in a momentum meeting, for example, that's two hours long, you're going to leave with two to three goals attained in one day, right? So there's just win after win after win after win. And it's amazing how the momentum builds. I, I had a client, this woman had an amazing game that she developed. It consisted of some questions and she had the questions written down, handwritten on slips of paper. Like I feel like they were torn strips of paper, but they were, they were on strips of paper and she had them in an envelope and it was a playable game. I mean, people played it and she had that envelope and it was a kind of, I had a, I have a picture of it, this crumbled envelope. 
And she was walking around with this envelope for nine years and she would play this game. You know, she would show up with her friends and, oh, let's play the game. And she'd bring the envelope and they'd play. And so when I started working with her, what I did was I lowered expectations. <laughs> you know, she was really ambitious. So the thing is, I noticed that there's this resistance sometimes when I'm dealing with people who are really ambitious. And that is that when I say, okay, you want to write 10 pages. How many pages do you think you can write in the next hour? And often I'll hear 10. And I'll say, okay, well, let's go for one. And if I meet resistance with that and say, you know, that's, that's just too low of a bar. It's just too low of a goal. Then I say, uh-huh, this is the, this is, this person has ambition. This person has drive. And so what I do is I try to temper things by saying, let's go for one. And so at the end of an hour, if two or three pages are written, that's like a huge win. It's a huge win. The thing is, I, I think a lot of ambitious people want to get done. And the wanting to get done stops them from starting or finishing. And so when I work with clients, I try to create the framework and manage the goals and the goal setting. And I try to be a really encouraging and helpful presence. And part of that is celebrating those wins and, and setting up a framework where there are wins, there are triumphs often. Yeah. And you're also reframing their perspective a little bit, it sounds like, right? Where kind of going back to Iris, Ira Glass's language, if not his actual idea, the person who's like, I want to write 10 pages in an hour. Now they're looking at the gap between zero pages and 10 pages. And it's gigantic. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're like, let's do one page. That's a smaller gap. And then let's pay attention to how much you actually wrote. You wrote three pages in the hour or two pages in the hour. Let's look at the progress instead of the gap. Exactly. And so going back to this client, she was resistant at first with the goal. I kind of call it goal management, where I would say, well, let's, let's, let's go for a little bit less. However, she progressed faster than anyone else I ever worked with. And at the end of six weeks, she had a complete game board laminated cards, all those clues that were on strips of paper and in that crumpled envelope were now typed on laminated cards. She had game pieces, she had typed out rules, and she was ready to workshop and pitch her game to publishers in six weeks. But for nine years, she had this <laughs> these clues in an envelope. Wow. Yeah. So it was about managing her expectations and creating those those small wins, those short-term wins, and th that's the thing that creates momentum. Is those short-term wins. Absolutely. You, you look at your long-term goal, and then you put it away for, for a little bit and say, okay, now that we know what that is, we can plan backwards and let's do A, B, C, or D. And a lot of times when we say we're going to get something done in three months, if you apply that strategy, you get it done in less time. <laughs> something you've been sitting on for five, six years, <laughs> you know, you just get it done. That's awesome. And it's just, it's just taking this big task and breaking it down into small manageable chunks 
that ADHD friendly phrase that we hear all the time, but also smaller chunks than you think they should be and changing your perspective to look at the progress over the, over the gap is what it sounds like. That's at least part of your formula for helping people finish. That's at least part. Yeah. Deep breaths help too. (laughs) Loads of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That's awesome. And, and the subtext of that is emotional regulation, right? That's, yes. that's part of what you're teaching with those deep breaths. Oh, absolutely. It can be really hard to look at the finish line. And even when you break it down, you know, I, I, no, I notice a restlessness. And I've noticed it in myself, which is why I created Momentum Meetings. Because uh, I know what it feels like to just have goals and to have these lofty goals. <laughs> and, and the restlessness mixed in with the ambition and the passion. Mm. And that's a thing that as parents we can experience too, right? Is restlessness and ambition kind of for our kids. Like we want our kids to do all this amazing stuff and they're they're maybe just not there yet, right? Like I know I'm having this experience with my kids. I'm having this interesting trying to reframe my perspective where I'm like, I, I just want them to get involved in theater at school because I think that they'll meet a lot of kids who are on their wavelength And I think they'll get a lot of good teamwork stuff out of it that they kind of need. But I'm learning that they're really into Cub Scouts. Like I'm finding that they're maybe into Cub Scouts even more than I am. And not that I'm like not into it, but, and also not that I'm a super passionate about it because I'm not, it's a thing I enjoy. I've made some friends in the adult side of Cub Scouts and I like that my kids are getting adventures from it, but I'm learning that they're really motivated by the adventuring side of Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts starts in March. So we're like, Boy, they might be Boy Scouts by the time this podcast even posts, for all I know, because I got a lot in the can. Um, but Boy Scouts is when the adventures really start happening. That's when you can camp once a month and do it in like snow and stuff. So I'm curious to see what happens there. But I kind of am like, they're not quite old enough yet to be striving for things, I guess. And I, the 42-year-old dad in me who strives for stuff is like, I want you to be striving. And I have to back up and be like... Brendan, you're 42 and like your job is to help people strive for stuff. So chill out with your kids. So I, I, I understand what you're talking about. What you're saying is hitting me in this like interesting way where I'm kind of reflecting on myself and some of the inner, inner dialogue and turmoil that I'm having around the level of striving and ambition that I'm seeing in my kids. And I reminding myself that no, they're 11 and they don't, there's not a lot of 11 year olds who are super ambitious. So I think I'm putting my adult ambition on them and it's not appropriate. You know, it it is a timeless challenge. As I'm hearing you speak, I'm thinking about myself and thinking, yeah, I need to chill out. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So So sticking with kids, but not necessarily our own. You mentioned that you spent some time as an educator and you really use the power of theater and creative arts to teach kids with ADHD and similar special education challenges for a while there. What was that experience like? And and what are some takeaways from it? Well, it was amazing. Um, When I first started doing it, it was like redemption. (laughs) Because I often say to people who say, I'm creative or I want to be creative, but I don't know where to start. Uh, I'm not particularly passionate about anything. I will tell them, think about something in the world that you'd like to correct. Think about an injustice that you've experienced, either firsthand or or by observation, and go in to the experience and think about how you would address it 
And going into educational theater was like that for me. I had a professor in undergrad who told me about educational theater. I had not heard of it. I was a theater student of hers. And I struggled in school so much that hearing that there was this thing where you could combine arts and education was amazing as a profession. Something like Sesame Street or Electric Company. And so I'm dating myself, right? I'm right there with you. It's okay. So there's still a Sesame Street, but... Yeah. I remember when Spider-Man didn't talk. And there was this thing called Schoolhouse Rock, right? Yeah. I had that on DVD. Right? Oh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, that taught people, taught like a nouns, a person, place, or a thing, and <laughs> conjunction, junction, what's, what's your, your function? function, and learning all of these, the, these elements of grammar and learning about history in this fun and, and arresting way. And this was my chance to enter the educational system in a way that fit me and in a way that I thought was right for me and write for the type of student that I was aiming toward. So going into educational theater at first was about social issues. I started out working in different schools across New York City addressing prejudice and racism through theater. I moved on, though, to relationship violence conflict resolution through drama, <laughs> HIV AIDS education, and Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespearean language, right? So it was just a great avenue to explore how to teach all of these things through theater. So for example, if I was teaching about the Civil War, I would break a class up into two and you're the North and you're the South and this is what you're fighting for and this is what you're fighting for. And then I'll tell the students to, to solve the problem. So I'll ask them how they would address it and even to create the argument. And after acting things out, we might learn specific things about what really happened and act that out. And I mean, I've done other things. I've done literature, African-American literature, and I've done books with younger kids where they get to be the characters in books and then extend the story or create something like a sequel. Well, okay, this character just walked off at the end of the book. Where do you think they went? Awesome. So yeah, it's, it, was, it was amazing to approach education in that way and to get people to, to not just be empty vessels, get students to not be empty vessels that are just soaking up facts, but to live it and to breathe it and to execute it. And it was amazing to see how they assimilated those lessons and how they were able to really retain uh, information. And so I think it's just such a travesty that, that art is under attack in a lot of ways in the educational system and that it's not being assimilated as much as it could be. It sounds like what you're doing is you're giving them a con the kids a concept and then they're creating a skit or a play to explain that concept. Like instead of writing a paper, they're writing a skit or a, or a monologue or something like that. Am I understanding that part correctly? Yes. Like for example, I mean, it can take many forms, but for example, I taught Black Boy by Richard Wright to middle school kids. And so 
after reading some of the book, I, because I know these, these particular children had difficulty sustaining attention in reading, but they needed to read the book. So what I did is I had them read a portion, a, a smaller portion. Some of it we read aloud together. And then I created a talk show, right? <laughs> it was kind of based off of Oprah Winfrey's show, right? And so I was the host in this particular instance. And I had different students play parts. So there's a scene in Black Boy where young Richard Wright kills a cat, right? Oh God, I hope I'm not giving too much away. And I, so I had young Richard Wright on stage. I had the father on stage. I had other characters in the family on stage. And I had the other students come up and ask questions, because this was the format that was often on, on Oprah at that time, where audience members could come up and ask questions and say, why did you do that? So everyone was engaged. And so these students had to embody the characters, and they had to talk about the motivations of the characters, and, and they had to be challenged on the spot by, by the other audience members who were, who were asking them whatever, because we didn't plan that in advance. And so that's how they got to really get into the characters in Black Boy. And, and, and that actually propelled them to want to read the next chapter. Yeah. So that's, that's one way. I mean, there are many different forms. But, but, and, and that's what I love about educational theater. You can, you can take it in so many different directions. I fully agree. I kind of interrupted you as you were talking about the importance of arts education. And I completely agree with you on that. And it's not okay that it just isn't being prioritized. We're leaning into that STEM stuff really significantly. Not that that's not important because it absolutely is, but I'm a bigger fan of STEAM where we get a little art in there too. <laughs> right. Yes. Art will embellish all of that, the STEM. <laughs> it really will, you know, and it really help students absorb and retain. And, and I think that's, that's key. Because we don't retain, we only retain, what, 10% or less of what we learn in school? Unless we teach it, and then it goes up significantly. <laughs> right, right. Once you start teaching people stuff, it go, you're up in like the 80, 90 percentile for comprehension. And that's why, yeah, so when I uh, taught HIV AIDS education, I mean, it was through theater. And the point is, I say I taught it, but what I really did was I taught the students how to teach it. Yeah. Yeah, and so the teens would go into community centers and prisons and churches and they would act out the skits and they would facilitate the workshops and once we were on site I just sat there you know and just made sure that they had everything they needed so that they could execute their work and show uh, show other people what they know and 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 inform and and learn also from the people that they're trying to impart information to yeah and those kids absolutely still remember more about HIV AIDS than their peers because of that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Go in the direction of your passion. Absolutely. Don't be ashamed to ask for help. If you're low on money, um, ask a friend, get an accountability partner, Join a support group, but get creative by any means necessary because it will give you confidence and it will help you to retain and absorb the information that you would like to 
keep handy so that you can move forward as a creator. And for anybody who happens to be an entrepreneur and would like to get started getting their ducks in a row, they can go to swellhead.com and get a free five-step blueprint on how to jumpstart their workflow and build their dream business. I want people with ADHD to know that you are absolutely capable of reaching your goals and that your brain is uniquely wired to be an out-of-the-box thinker and the support that you may ask for is not anything to be ashamed of. Everybody has their strengths and everyone has their challenges. Go in the direction of your strengths. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.